hello hello um how's everybody doing uh i hope everyone is well knocked over a can here um yeah so welcome to the first episode uh that i've been able to do at home uh in a moderately convenient uh manner in like the last month or so um Actually, that's not true. I was in quarantine like a week ago, but even still, you know. Um, again, I hope everyone's well. I hope everyone is staying safe as they can during these times. Um, I know that everybody, regardless of your situation or your circumstances, is struggling right now, and it's an awful time for absolutely everyone. I don't think there's many people today that can say that they're having a good time right now. Um, so just remember that in kind of... You know, the way that you're going about living your day, maybe you have a bad interaction with someone, you know, at a drive through or something like that, and you decide to scream at them uh, and tell them that their earring doesn't look good. Uh, maybe you realize that, in fact, that person is having uh, a pretty awful day, and you shouldn't say that. And this totally isn't something that happened to me yesterday or anything like that. But, um, yeah, just don't do that. You know, be nice to people. Um Speaking of being nice to people, uh, today we are just going to kind of hit on this, how do I want to say it, this inconsistency that exists in our modern day society, you know, especially here in America. Um, I can't really talk for anywhere else other than America um, based on my own experiences because I've only ever lived in America. Um, so I can only ever talk about really in full depth, uh, the American experience. So one thing that I've noticed quite recently, um, if you haven't been following me in these last couple months, um, I've really doubled down on educating myself, you know, probably about two, three months ago, I was getting real arrogant and, uh, that's not a good place to be, especially for someone who, you know, wants to see liberation movements for people you can't have like an arrogant white asshole trying to <laughs> influence people you know what i mean and try to educate people so i, I got to put myself in my place sometimes so caught a little bit of an ego we're not doing that anymore so if you've been following me for a while now you know that i've been going through this process of reading more theory of reading more analysis of you know really reflecting on some of my understandings and educating myself as best as i can with the tools that i have you know um and so through this, one thing that I've noticed, uh, and I've noticed this before, but I really have gotten a, a, a greater picture for it, and that is this kind of disconnect, uh, again, speaking in America, this disconnect of like the, the general public. So, you know, basically most everyone you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis I would consider is the quote-unquote general public. I know that's a super broad definition of what general public is, but I mean, come on, we're all common, you know, sense-havers. So let, let's, you know, realize what your general public is. But, like, so most people you interact with, you're going to be your working-class people. And so what I've come to understand in greater depth is really the the extent to which the you know general working class people of this country uh, are disconnected from the reality 
of their lives. So one thing that, you know, can kind of explain this in a very simplistic way is, you know, and, and again, this is not to condemn anyone for, you know, existing like this. This is no one's fault, necessarily. This is the world we live in, and people of, you know, all ideas, all morals, all values, all beliefs are simply just a reflection, uh, quite usually, of their environments. So, I mean, you can't really blame anyone uh, until, you know, they kind of get to a certain point where it's like, all right, dude, come on, you know, maybe have some open-minded thought but whatever i'm getting off track so basically what i'm trying to say is like you know through this process of educating myself i've really come to the realization that so many people today have really no true understanding of like the complexities of the lives that we live um i recently have gone back and read uh the communist manifesto now that i have a little bit more of like a working knowledge to understand it a bit better and one of the things that Marx and Engels point out in the Communist Manifesto that I think is extremely relevant today um, is this idea of kind of like the alienation that we feel. And this is more of an abstract philosophy when Marx, you know, writes about it in depth as well as Engels. But it's also a pretty simplistic philosophy when you understand the separation that people today are beginning to really experience between one another. One of the things that has really led to this um, has been, of course, as Marx says, the uh, modernization of the production process. But on top of that as well, we see the mistrust of the media kind of outsourcing itself into this mistrust of one another and we in america already had this fear of one another for a while now um i would say especially since after the attacks of 9-11 but we really do not trust one another and that's an awful reality because whether we like it or not we all live in america and so if we are to see anything get better in this country we need to work together. And I don't think that many people understand what that means. I don't just mean like, you know, we got to work together and pass laws and, you know, enact legislation and like, you know, have peaceful protests and shit. No, we have to work together and have a revolution. We have to completely overthrow the the existence the state of things as it exists today because um not for nothing but the reason why so many people are completely disconnected from the realities that they live in is because those realities quite often do not add up and this is like how do i explain it in the way that i want this is kind of like a phenomenon which leads people to a point where they can't conceptualize, like, essentially their own uselessness. You know, if if you're to be told the awful things that capitalism has done to society and then, you know, you're just expected to continue living, it's, it's a bit daunting at first, especially when so many of us, again, are so far alienated.
from one another. Um, but I, I feel that this removal from the reality that exists, the reality in America that we exist in, um, has done a lot more damage than I think we give it credit for. Um, we often joke about how ridiculous Americans are in their conception of the world and how little understanding they have of not just the world, but also America and how it functions. I mean, I have no idea how many Congress people there are. I have no idea uh, how many Republicans and how many Democrats are in the Supreme Court. I have no idea who most of the people who are making the decisions that are influencing my life and, you know, the, the liberties and freedoms that I enjoy. Most of those people, I have no fucking clue even what their name is, let alone anything more than that. And I don't think that that's necessarily because I'm lazy. Surely as someone who's interested in politics and all these things, you would think that I would go through and learn these things, but one thing is for sure, and that is there definitely seems to have been an intentionality with the confusion and ridiculousness that exists within uh, the government of the United States. You know, the way that it operates is so insanely complicated, and for no real reason, um, other than the fact that the government, not for nothing, but it wasn't really designed to exactly, quote-unquote, work. This is something that I'm trying to toy with and write about uh, in a blog post that I just posted. Um, this idea of, you know, kind of what we see as the problems in government are not necessarily problems except for the fact that they're problems for us, you know. The government has absolutely no problems if you're a member of, you know, the group that is benefiting from the way the government operates and acts. There, there's no problems in the government to you. And the fact of the matter is, since the people who do see problems with the government, who do feel that there is change that need, needs to be done, within, you know, our institutions and our systems and everything to do with our society, those people are not the ones in positions of power. And if, if we're to want to, you know, create change, if we're to want to educate ourselves to a point where we have the, the foundations in order to facilitate that change, we have to go a step further, and that's kind of what I'm working on right now. And that step further is really beginning to understand, again, the complexities that exist within really every, you know, layer of every fabric of our reality. If you are to look to something as simple as, say, a box of Fruit Loops on a shelf in Walmart, there is so much involved to get that box of Fruit Loops box of fruit loops onto that shelf at walmart there are so many different people involved in the process of getting those fruit loops on that shelf at walmart and why why is it that we would add so many complications to a production process so many different people onto a process that could easily just be you know walmart directly buying fruit loops 
from the company that produces Fruit Loops, I believe it's Kellogg's, and then shipping it directly to their stores. Um, but the problem is this doesn't allow everyone to make their buck. But if you don't look at this as being something that is a problem, if we simply look at the realities that we live in and just accept them, um, or worse than that, if we don't accept the realities and we instead try to input our own analysis of those realities above the realities that exist, we're, one, doing ourselves a huge disservice by completely, again, removing ourselves from the realities in front of us. That's an awful life to live, in my opinion. To have no understanding of the world you live in means that you can't have an understanding of yourself. And what is life if not to understand yourself? I'm, I'm not even much of a, a philosophical guy. I think sometimes it's pretty mundane, and I think that also philosophy is uh, insanely useless in most cases because it's not written or intended to be used to facilitate any form of change. It's simply a pointing to and an analysis of a bunch of, you know, smart folks who think that they've got it all figured out. And then we all just have to learn about it. And it's extremely boring and extremely depressing, usually, and extremely uh, abstract in a way that most people can't understand. So I'm not much of a philosophy guy, but I do think that it is important to ask these questions because it doesn't take um, a leading political uh, uh, philosopher to recognize the fact that not just here in America, but all over the world, there are extremely large crises or crises, uh, if not actively happening, um, really on the precipice of uh, erupting. One of them, more specifically in America, is this economic recession, which I feel that most of us have not really come to terms with uh, the fact that it is coming. Um, in America, we have been lucky uh, as so far as the fact that our economy has not completely collapsed yet, because not for nothing, but absolutely none of our production within this country country is done to support the people of this country it's all done through trade and most countries all over the world including the united states really do not have the money to be trading right now but because we would rather make a profit than actually produce things to meet the needs of the people we produce and then trade in order to make a profit so in most countries, there's not a production infrastructure set up that is built to meet the needs of the country in which that, you know, production is in. It is meant to meet the needs of countries outside of itself. And so when you have things such as a, you know, a global pandemic where a lot of factories have to get shut down, a lot of people go into lockdown, if you are a country who cannot you know, grow food in order to feed your citizens, if you're not a country that produces your own medication in order to, you know, get hospitals up and running, if you're not a country which is able to meet the needs of your people, then, for one, you are a failure 
and for two, um, you're going to you're going to if you haven't already uh, collapse because if you are to look at history, which I am relearning is incredibly important. If you are to look at history and you are to go through and analyze the changes that occur, you know, big, big changes, different government styles, different countries having, you know, world power, um, different inventions, different technologies, different ideas. All these things are in every way influenced by the environments in which they take place. So as I'm beginning to understand, the great thing about Marxism-Leninism, and I'm not to, this is not to say that I'm necessary, necessarily an ML, um, I'm certainly leaning that way, but I still don't really have a cemented uh, or selected ideology, I should say. But one thing that Marxism-Leninism offers that I feel that most other tendencies do not is a scientific approach, which I can really appreciate. And this scientific approach allows us to really look not just at simply the, the existence of problems. You know, it's not enough to simply say, oh, police brutality is a problem in the United States or... Um, everything in the United States, all the institutions and stuff are systematically racist. Okay, yes, that's right. But now we have to go deeper. We have to understand why this is. We have to understand how this happened. We have to understand what caused this. We have to understand, you know, how to take all that information, contextualize it, learn from it, and then implement it in a way to create change that is necessary. The great thing about Marxism, which I am coming to appreciate, is this this scientific approach itself. You know, Marx realized the same way that Charles Darwin realized that the phenomenon that is in existence in, you know, every layer of the world, which is, uh, I believe it's called historical dialectics, maybe, I, I don't know, um, I don't know what the word for it is, so I apologize for that. But essentially the idea, and and I'm going to dive a bit deeper into it to kind of tease out my understanding of it. And I'm not saying that this is the, the truth, this is what it's saying, but what, what I'm saying is this is my understanding of it. So a couple episodes back, I talked about how I, I was reading Our History is the Future by Nick Estes and how this idea of like, you know, the interconnectedness between not only just people and people, uh, but also people in the land that those people live in, as well as the other, you know, inhabitants of that land, you know, non-human relatives, as uh, many indigenous cultures call them. Um, and this is, you know, really piqued an interest of mine because it's pretty evident in nature that everything that exists in a certain ecosystem if you know anything about biology, or I should say environmental science, I think it would be, um, everything within a, a certain um, ecosystem has a role to play. And so that ecosystem can only exist and can only exist successfully if each one of those, you know, 
um, groups plays its role. You got your decomposers, you got your uh, other things. Uh, I only did school, I only did biology for a semester, so leave me alone. Um, but you have to have all these, you know, players uh, doing their part in order to see a successful ecosystem. And we know through, you know, many different studies, uh, what happens when one of those members of that ecosystem no longer has a starring role. So, like, I believe it was Yosemite or Yellowstone where their wolf population died off in, I think, like, the 70s or 80s. And so then you had a huge, 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 huge increase in, I believe, the deer population or the fish population. And because of that, the the pests and the bacteria that whichever one of those was carrying, a part of me thinks it was deer because of ticks, but another part part of me thinks it was fish because of just like uh, like the uh, the the parasites on them, you know. Um, and maybe they were passing disease, but it, Jesus, I, I I just start talking, you know what I mean. But basically, what happened was with the removal of the main predator of the ecosystem all the remaining animals within that ecosystem were basically allowed to flourish and because of that the whole ecosystem got destroyed um and with a reintroduction of a decently sized wolf population you saw that ecosystem begin to blossom again in the same way basically uh, you know, all the institutions and systems which exist today are made up of millions of different moving parts. And so something as complex as, say, police brutality or racism in America cannot simply be solved with, you know, legislation. It can't simply be solved with the passing of laws. I mean, how many anti-discrimination laws do we have to pass? How many equal opportunity laws do we have to pass? How many um, anti-harassment, anti-discriminatory um, laws do we have to pass before people stop, you know, doing those things? And the, the problem really comes when you begin to understand that you can't just simply find a problem within a society and then pass a law in order to solve that problem. Um, one of my favorite things to say is, um, if America isn't racist, then why do we have to keep passing anti-racist laws? And the thing really becomes that like we can have whatever laws we want. We can put into place whatever legislation we want. But that's not truly changing the structure of the society that we live in. That's not erasing 400 plus years of white supremacy. That's not erasing 400 plus years of colonialism, of imperialism. That's not erasing these things, and that's not erasing their influence on the, the power structures, on the systems, on the institutions, on everything that exists in today's society. And so this is kind of something that's really began to spark my interest. Um, and so I've really been, again, diving into some reading, diving into some education. And I think that something that we really need to talk about here in America is 
and I hate to harp on this because, I mean, such low-hanging fruit, but the education system in this country, as far as I've experienced it, is absolutely atrocious. And not for nothing, but going to get worse. Um, if you didn't read the... And I know that Trump lost. I don't know how that's going to play out, and I don't even want to fucking talk about it. But if you saw what the GOP released as their agenda, first of all, one of the things that they released was they wanted to get rid of uh, equal opportunity marriage, same-sex marriage. That was one of their things that they want to do. And they still probably will do it with Amy Coney Barrett. She just passed, uh, she was the swaying vote on a law that said that New York State couldn't ban religious gatherings due to COVID. And so my grandparents and parents are probably going to start going back to church service again, which is super dope. Um, and so what, what, where I was going with this was basically to say that, like, it doesn't really matter what laws we have, like, that's not the reality that exists. And so this, this education that I've done, this diving back into reading and stuff like that, that I've done has really brought to my understanding a conversation that we need to have in America. And that is that so few of us. So few of the American public actually has a grasp on the reality of their own lives. And that is not to say, you know, oh, you stupid asshole, you don't even, you don't even understand anything. You know what I mean? It's not to say that. But what I'm saying is it's so depressing, you know, just thinking about, because my thing is like, I'm a pretty ignorant person. You know, I'm uneducated. I really came from a very, very different background. And so this is all a process for me, too. But because of that, it's so depressing to me to know how many people I've left behind who will live and die without ever truly understanding what it was to live, without ever truly understanding what it means to live, you know? So many people today are so convinced by this capitalist mode of production, by this liberal government, that your freedoms exist exclusively in the field or realm of economics. You know, your freedoms exist because you can go out and get whatever job you want, or your freedoms exist because you can go out and buy whatever you want. And not only is this not true for, I would say, a majority of Americans today, but it also isn't true freedom. You know, again, as I've said before, and many people have said before me, these opportunities that capitalism supposes to provide are not opportunities of self-determination, but they are simply opportunities to make a wage. You know, when you talk about the, the lack of freedom or the, the lack of uh, opportunities that capitalism creates, so often you get people talking about like, oh no, there's there's so many more jobs that exist under capitalism that wouldn't exist under other systems. And I mean, first off, yeah, that's because they're not necessary. You know, there shouldn't I shouldn't work at a drive through selling cigarettes to people. Like that that shouldn't be a thing that exists, right? Um But more so than that, also like the, the jobs, again, the opportunities that they're creating are more often than not just simply wage labor jobs. And if all that we can consider 
uh, opportunity as is the ability to go work at some other person's place of you know business and get paid a wage then that doesn't seem like much of an opportunity to me um, it, it's becoming more and more painfully obvious whether we want to acknowledge it or not that there are fewer and fewer and fewer things motivating the general public to keep going and that is a extremely terrifying realization we have in this country and around the world suicide rates far higher than ever before we have rates of depression rates of anxiety rates of all kinds of mental health issues that are higher than in any period of history before and a lot of people are saying you know oh this has to do with the generation coming up you know not being tough enough or there's people who say oh these problems that have always existed now they're just making a, a profit off of it it's probably some validity to that um and then there's people who are just simply saying that this is just people being a bunch of whiny little bitches and whatever take you want to have on the mental health crisis that we're facing in this world today is fine but the simple fact of the matter is is something that we've never faced before in our modern day and something that one way or another is going to have to be addressed you know we can't just continue down a path which is seeing millions of people take their own lives out of just pure desperation for freedom you know pure loss of interest in life not for nothing but we in america who live quite privileged lives quite often don't really come to terms with the monotony of those privileged lives and that's not to say boo-hoo woe is me i'm a privileged asshole who also wants to you know be oppressed but it is to say that you know a lot of people who are extremely privileged live awfully boring meaningless monotonous lives and we try to fill it with things like social media we try to fill it with consumption we try to fill it with a million different things but at the end of the day i believe that one thing that marxism and more broadly leftist politics offers people is an opportunity at finding something much more fulfilling finding self-determination finding true liberty in their own lives something that liberal democracy espouses to allow espouses to create but again we the people today have something in our toolbox to combat the lies of liberal government the lies of capitalism by just simply pointing to the world in which we live by simply writing down what you know our day-to-day -day lives look like we would be able to disprove the supposed eternal truths of liberalism and we would be able to you know break down and really point out the inconsistencies within capitalism a system that you know proposes basically that everyone is free to you know be whatever level of wealthy that they want because everyone is supposedly free to partake in the free market economy but if you're someone like me who has gone weeks without groceries because you simply can't afford them then you know that that's not true um and because this is such an important realization because so many of us are so far removed 
from the realities that we live in, we fall victim to what's called idealism. And I, again, I'm not really much of a philosophy buff in that I don't really have a, a nuanced understanding of philosophy as a whole. So I'm not really going to dive into any kind of like extreme analysis of this, but basically to understand what idealism is, is to look at, you know, utopian conceptions of socialism, where, you know, people after the French revolutions wrote about these perfect utopian societies where, you know, the wealth of a nation was equally distributed to every citizen and every citizen was granted certain rights and they were able to live happy lives and everything like that. These these ideas, and not for nothing, but idealist philosophies, liberalism is one of those. And if you don't believe me, again, just look at the reality that you live in um, and compare it to what liberalism says it's supposed to look like. So th this problem kind of surfaces itself when a few things happen which we are experiencing today. One, when so much of the population, the majority of the population, feels <clears throat> so utterly disconnected from everything to do with their lives. What I mean by this is pretty simple. How many of you feel as if you have no power to influence your life? How many people feel you have no power to influence change within your life? You know, how many people do you think would want to create change at a bigger scale than that? Want to create change in their community or in their state or in their country? And how many of those people who want to do something like that, who have a passion to do something like that, how many of those people do you think are actually capable of doing that? And I don't mean physically. And I don't mean these supposed opportunities that, you know, so many people say, oh, well, you want to make change? Well, go out and do it. Go, go change stuff if you want to change stuff. Well, I mean, again, let's be realistic here. But the problem with idealism is, it, you know, you have that alienation from one another, but then you also have an alienation from everything in life in general. You know, you feel so disconnected a lot of times from your career or your job. You feel disconnected from the activities of life. You feel disconnected from even something as basic as, you know, shopping or consuming goods because how many goods is it, how many goods are there that, you know, maybe someone, not, not even just to say that everyone deserves whatever they want, but how many things do we need as people that we can't afford? And so the, the problem with idealism, again, is it completely removes itself from the reality that exists. It disconnects itself from the reality in which it tries to implement itself. And so this process of alienation from one another leads us all to kind of develop this, this uh, individualistic idealism, which is really really rotted the brains of many Americans today um, and to analyze this in its in its fullness would be a whole episode's worth of uh, study but basically to understand this phenomenon it's it's kind of twofold one individuality has always been a preached uh, belief and value in American 
uh, uh, politics and philosophy because it's the basis of coming into a nation which already existed and had you know a huge population uh, and had for thousands of years and just coming over here and massacring them and then saying no this is our land because if it weren't for the individuality being so central to the liberal ideals and to the capitalist ideals you would have never seen you know such huge masses of people not just in north america but all over the world that's precisely what colonialism and imperialism and settlerism is is just that it's the individuality and the the thought process of well i have these rights to life liberty and a pursuit of happiness and i want to pursue a happy uh liberty filled life over there in that guy's house you know and then because of that being the main doctrine the main uh philosophy of many of the founding members of this country you see a system that is completely built on self-interest on every level you know that's why uh a lot of people warned against the two-party system because the context in which it was being built was going to further uh, incentivize the self-interest the self-interest which exists on both sides of our political spectrum in America and has always because you know as you well you know just as well as I that the the people who get to participate in politics the the game changers the policy makers the legislation passers they're not normally folks like you and I um, and so this quite obviously allows for this individuality, this self-interest, this swollen and grotesque um, uh, greed to, you know, fatten the pockets of fewer and fewer people every generation until finally you get to the point where we're at, which I would argue is... I would say on the precipice of a true and utter collapse, not to say that anything's going to get better from here. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say it, but I don't really know if there's necessarily going to be successful change in America unless a lot of things change, including uh, the complete uh, dissemination of the United States as a united nation um because it's a ridiculous notion to have such a massive country of such vastly different people under one law especially a law that was created you know 250 years ago by people who even at their time were not members of the general public in america they again even at their time were members of the ruling class um and so this is why people like Marx, people like Lenin, people like Mao, a lot of folks that I'm reading right now um, value the importance of revolutions. Um, and to go back to the original point of this podcast, this interconnectedness, this uh, historical uh, dialecticism, I think would be the proper way to say it, that is clear and uh, ever you know, existent in, in all layers of our world, that 
can be looked at not only just simply as like a connection between the two you know the his history influences our present which influences our future that's an important understanding to have but more so than that is even if our history does not change our present and therefore we cannot change our future at the very least we can learn from our failures in our attempts to change our future um, and our present we can learn from these failures and then use them to try again um, and that's what you know people like frederick engels and socialism's uh utopian and scientific talk about uh they talk about how like you know the revolutionary ideas of people right in the beginning of the 1800s after like the french revolution or the revolutions in say great britain um they were only able to come to the understandings which they could surmise you know they didn't have the available history to look at to come to more structural scientific understandings and so a lot of people wrote very utopian very idealistic uh theories of what socialism could look like but again this this is not necessarily something to just point at and say see don't be a utopianist don't don't be a purist don't do that there's not anything to say that even these the most utopian and the most idealistic um, theories, there's nothing to say that they cannot be learned from. Um, you know, and that's kind of what's great about the dialectical nature of everything is that through this process of the past influencing the present, which therein influences the future, um, it gives you so many opportunities to learn, again, from the failures of the past in order to influence your present. And then while you are living in these moments, while you are living in these times of change, you can look around and you can genuinely see, okay, this works, this doesn't. And then you can take that information and, you know, learn from it and adapt and create a, a, a better structure, a better uh, a trial, a, a better effort to fix something, you know? That, that's a scientific approach to anything. You got your hypothesis, you have your experiment, you take the results, you come to a conclusion, and you test again. You know, everything that we learn, really, not for nothing, but is a theory. And that's, again, not to dive into the philosophy of truth or whatever. But that's just to say that nothing is necessarily true. Everything is true right now because everything that exists proves it to be that way. But as we've seen in many times, you know, throughout history, what has been, ex you know, accepted as true for a millennia can all of a sudden be proven wrong by one simple understanding. The theory of relativity, I would argue, is the same theory of, you know, this historical dialectics that Marx points to. And it's also the same theory that uh, Charles Darwin points to in his understanding of evolution uh, through natural selection. And that theory is this understanding that in everything, um, and this is another big realization that I'm trying to work through and really, really understand as best as I can, in everything that exists, there are contradictions at play. And this is yet another just insanely abstract theory 
This is one that is talked about in On Contradictions by Mao Zedong. Uh, I haven't read it myself, but I just listened to a Red Menace episode about it and plan on reading it tonight. And so hopefully I'll be able to come back to you soon with a little bit more nuanced understanding. But the basic understanding as far as I have it now is the fact that, you know, in all our systems, in all our institutions, in every form of science, and in every layer of life and existence, there are contradictions at play. A very easy example is something such as action and reaction. Another simple example would be positive and negatively charged um, ions. Um, another clear example would be capitalism, a system which requires the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the ruling class and the working class. You know, in, the, in its simplest form, the haves and the have-nots. The haves in a time where people still owned factories and stuff like that needed the factory workers. The haves in a time of um, massive conglomerates that owned multiple factories, they needed, you know, multiple factory managers. In a time of imperialism, where finance capital is going all over the globe in order to find new markets, will they need developing nations? And so, in every way that the ruling class um, exists, the proletariat exists in the same proportion. And basically what I'm... I guess that's not the way I want to put it. Basically what I'm saying is that the proletariat cannot exist without the bourgeoisie and vice versa. The working class cannot exist without the ruling class and vice versa. You know, if you own a factory but you got no workers to work in it, there's no point in owning that factory. And so if you have a country that is dominated by wage labor, but you don't have wage laborers, then you're a failed state. And so the very success of the bourgeoisie or, you know, our 1% in this country is and I, I can't really say this in a way that one doesn't sound sarcastic and two doesn't really kind of just sound stupid, but I cannot uh, underline this point enough that this means that capitalism itself the, the idea of capitalism, not capitalism in action in America, not capitalism in 2020, capitalism in its entirety, in its entire theory, is, one, filled with contradictions which do not allow it to make it out alive, and two, really, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, when we're talking about earlier, uh, how many things are involved in getting a, a box of Fruit Loops onto the shelf at Walmart? I was talking with my coworker today about how, you know, when I worked at Lowe's, one time I looked at a delivery sheet and I saw the insane amounts of charges for transportation between a, a manufacturing plant and then a warehouse and then a, 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 a what are they called? A distribution center and then the store. You know, Lowe's, one time, I read a, a, a just a delivery report, and it said that for one truck, they paid something ridiculous, like $13,000 worth of tra transportation fees. And not for nothing, but 
you know, the CEO of Lowe's is losing out on a lot of fucking money by doing that. But because capitalism is structured the way that it is, it's actually far more profitable for him, you know, to have all these complications. Because now, those are opportunities for, even if it's not simply him, those are opportunities for profit. You know, if I got a have instead of just you know somebody makes a two by four and then i go and i buy the two by fours and i sell them at my store if i have a guy who makes two by fours and then i have another guy who comes and inspects those two by fours and then i have another guy who transports those two by fours to some far away warehouse where those two by fours sit for like six to eight months and then we got some other folks who are going to pack those two by fours into a truck and ship them to a distribution center. And then there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to take those two by fours and send them out to, you know, three or four or five different stores. At every point, there is a new uh, profit to be made. And because capitalism so quickly exhausts its markets, it so quickly drains um, the very people that it needs to sustain its existence of their capital to sustain capitalism's existence it has to create new markets it has to extend into new markets and so you know if if there's one thing that we can take from this understanding it's that all of these things that we are facing today well let, let me put it this way we should be hopeful but realistic um we should not expect that someone is going to come along and become president or a congressperson or a house of representatives member or a supreme court justice or whatever and all of a sudden there's going to be all these laws passed all these changes that are going to come that are going to help the working class if you know anything about you know the understanding of the ruling class versus the working class um and this is a, an understanding that I'm really, again, myself starting to grasp and to wrestle with and really come to conclusions with, is that the government that exists in America, uh, in any other context to do with like philosophy, would be considered what we would call, quote-unquote, the state. Um, and basically, because that state exists in a capitalist society and because that capitalism in 2020 exists in an age of imperialism the only interests that that government can serve are the interests of those in charge of the imperialist powers you know in america we see this in the sense that those in positions of power are all the ones who are benefiting from this imperialism Whereas the people who are subject to this imperialism, whether it's, you know, colonialism in the sake of, like, you know, United States corporations setting up factories and places all over the world in order to find sweatshop or even just cheaper labor. Or if it's imperialism in the sense of, you know, I go to work for eight hours a day, I make my boss say five thousand dollars worth in profit but i only go away with a hundred dollars even though i was the only one in the store from open to close i was the person who sold all the merchandise 
I was the person who had to deal with the customers, clean the store, sell, you know, everything, do do everything to do with taking that money from the customer's pocket and putting it into the bank account of the owner of the business was my doing. And yet, because so-and-so is the one who, quote-unquote, took the risks and opened a store with all the products and stuff like that, they get the ex insane massive amounts of profit and then they dole out a lovely little wage for me which again if you know anything about you know marxist's understanding of economics you know a surplus value theory um and uh this this wage that is paid out to me it's not a wage that will give me you know happiness it's not a wage that will provide me with a life of fulfillment and joy but rather it's a wage that will provide me the necessities uh, to keep myself alive in order to come back to work tomorrow because as long as the people who are in charge are keeping the working class at a, a, a level of existence which is solely dependent on employment or you know someone else to support for them and then also is right above, you know, not being able to support themselves or not being supported by other people. This makes it so that they have to continue just fighting for scraps because it's scraps or nothing. Um, and I know so many people say, well, oh, we have government assistance programs. We have this and we have that. Listen, most of my family... Uh, at some point or another has been on government assistance, whether that's, you know, just general, you know, WIC or groceries or financial help or my mother who's a schizophrenic, she's disabled, so she's been on welfare for a long time. Um, I know for, for a fact that the government ex assistance programs that exist in this country are not ones to provide a, a happy life to people. They're ones to provide a life which keeps these people right above poverty. And that supposedly is supposed to be an inspiration uh, or a motivation for these people to quote-unquote pull themselves up from their bootstraps and go out and support themselves. But there's kind of some problems with this theory. The first one being pretty evident in the case of my mother, which is, not everyone is on welfare because they don't want to work. A lot of people are on government assistance programs because they can't support themselves. And so to keep these people at a level that is right above poverty is inhumane. Because if that is, you know, if, if the, the motivation behind that is to influence people to go out and get jobs, well, then you have to realize, again, there are people on government assistance programs who cannot get jobs. There are also, there's also a huge problem with this theory in today's day and age. You know, COVID-19 has put at least 30% of this country out of a job, many of whom will never see those jobs again. They're gone. They just don't exist anymore. On top of that, depending on what, you know, um, depending on what study you read, 70 to 80% of this country is living paycheck to paycheck. And that, that seems like a pretty normal thing, which that's awful because it shouldn't be. 
But what that really means is that if one emergency, you know, one emergency happens, say they get in a car accident or there's a medical emergency or they have they get sick and they have to take a week off or they lose their job because there's a global pandemic um, or, you know, a loved one dies or whatever the situation is. That means that if they miss one paycheck, they're in the red. And to many people, that can be losing their homes. To many people, that can be not eating tonight. To many people, that can be selling things like their car, which they're in, again, in today's modern day and age, puts them at yet another disadvantage because everywhere that I've worked has told me that if I don't have a reliable source of transportation, I can't work there. If you can't afford a car, how are you to get a job? And so we have to really, really begin to look at the society that we're living in and really begin to point the fingers at all the different things which, simply put, make no sense in our society. Again, why is it that we would build a society where we're going to pay $13,000 extra every time we want to import a truck full of lumber to Lowe's in order to have all the many different people touch it? And, you know, put it in their warehouse and then put it in a truck and put it in another warehouse. Why would we build a system like that? That makes no sense. Not only is it stupid just for the sake of like, well, now I have to wait so much longer to get my products. But the people who are in power, people who are designing this system, are losing out on money. Even if you create, you know, multiple new profit points, that doesn't mean, one, that you're going to be the one who makes the profit. And two... It doesn't really take into account that if you make profit at another point, you're taking profit away from a different point. And so at the end goal, if your goal as a business owner today is to make a profit, would it not make sense to just simply want to go directly to the producer of the goods, buy them outright, and then sell them in your store? But capitalism doesn't allow that because after a certain point of doing just that, well, I'm going to be making just as much as I'm paying Joe Schmo to buy the products. And so somehow or another, I got to make more. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my business. Or even beyond losing my business, I have to make more because I want to make more. Because that's what capitalism incentivizes. It incentivizes profit. Whether it's profit in the, in, in the sense that you know the business owner opening that business needs that profit in order to stay afloat, or if it's profit for the sake of just simply making a profit, it doesn't really matter. The simple fact of the matter is this. In a capitalist system, business, trade, production, all of these things can only exist to make a profit. And so what that means is that those cannot exist to meet the needs of the people. In a country such as the United States, who produces things such as oil, such as, you know, different agricultural goods, different precious metals, different products, in order to export them to make a profit. And therein, import quite often those very same products. That system does not allow anywhere for the people in the middle to get food on their plates. That system does not allow anywhere for the people who are making those products that are getting imported and exported to get paid enough to own a home, 
Nowhere in that process does anywhere talk does anyone talk about, hey, after years and years of exploiting the workforce in our country, who's going to buy the things we're producing? Because, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and the Waltons can't all just keep each other afloat by buying each other's goods. They need to have people in the places they are selling able to buy those goods. You know, Henry Ford was an awful person for many ways. But one thing that he said was, and it's funny because he did not stay true to this, but basically paraphrasing here, he, he said, why would I produce a car that none of my employees could buy? You know, why would we produce things? Why would we open businesses? Why would we, you know, do all these things if not for the sake to have people able to afford them? And more than that, more than just, you know, all right, we want to have iPhones be affordable or we want to have, um, I don't know, uh, MacBooks be affordable. More than that, we want to go, all right, what is necessary in America today? Oh, we have absolutely no infrastructure, no agricultural infrastructure to feed the people of America. All right, let's do that. And then once you have a semi-successful agriculture business, or not business, but agriculture industry, which can therein produce enough to support the people of America, well then, you can't just simply produce that and go, all right, here's a lemon, it's going to be $15. You have to produce that for the sake of getting it to the people who need it. Again, if you saw that in America, we need farms, we need agriculture, because we can't feed our people, and then you, you know, go through the rigmarole of dedicating the resources and the time and the energy and all everything that you need in order to build this industry up to a point where it can support the people. And then you go through all of that and then you do not sell those goods. You do not get those goods uh, at a price point or an exchange rate that the people that those goods were produced for can afford. Then the whole deal was pointless. You know, why does Apple produce cell phones, which people cannot afford? Why does Ford produce cars, which people cannot afford? Why does capitalism create productive forces, which a few people can afford to not only purchase from, but also own and produce? You know, do we really want a world filled with Amazon everything do we really want a world where you know one person produces everything one person owns all the warehouses one person owns all the distribution centers no but this is what we see as <clears throat> as a progression of capitalism but again i want to reassert the point that this is not in any way whatsoever a corrupt version of capitalism which has caused this again this is a progression of capitalism these problems that we are facing today are caused by class struggle which creates a system which is unequal which only the minority can succeed in which only the minority can have places of power in, 
which only the minority can live and, and survive in. If that is the system which capitalism creates, then it wouldn't take anyone more intelligent than, you know, someone who can't afford to eat tonight to say, hey, something's wrong here. So to summarize all of this, basically what I want to say is that today in America, one of the main problems that is facing us is a lack of reality. It's a lack of realism is a lack of analysis of the material conditions which exist for the general working people in America. So many of us think because we live much more privileged lives than many people around the world that somehow or another we're just simply, you know, better off. But even if I have an iPhone in my, you know, I hate to say it like this because it sounds stupid and it sounds gross and it sounds you know, just not how I want it to sound, but there's homeless people who have iPhones in their pockets. They're, you know what I mean? So, like, there's there's a, there's an incentive at play. There is a, there's an intentionality at play. And if we don't look past simply the problems that exist into the formation of those problems, the contradictions which led to these problems, you know, the progression of time, and things that, you know, occurred in that time towards that creation of that problem. If we don't analyze the problem for all its nuance and all its complexities like that, then again, we can never expect to change them. Um, the easiest metaphor that I can say is if, you know, you're driving down a highway and every 500, you know, meters your car breaks down. But instead of looking at anything, you just change out the front left tire. Then are you really focused on changing anything? Or are you just simply, you know, sure that you have it right and you just got to keep trying it until the world works or until it works? And so the way that we have to take this metaphor and, you know, kind of present it in a intelligent way is... Um, we have tried so many times over in this country to fix problems by simply passing laws. And every single time that we have tried this, we have seen it fail. I don't need to tell you the amount of laws that have been passed in order to make it so that black people are not to be killed by police officers simply for being black. I do not need to tell you all the laws that need to be passed to tell men and women alike to stop raping each other. I don't know, you know, I don't even know how many laws have been passed to tell jobs, hey, you can't just hire the people that you want simply because they're the, you know, the color of skin or the gender or the sexual orientation that you want. And so it goes without saying that within a system that calls itself free, that calls itself liberal, and that calls itself equal, it's very hard to prove that truth when you have to consistently keep passing laws and changing the very structure of the society that exists under these governments and tell people to stop doing these racist, these sexist, these homophobic, these transphobic things, then it probably goes without saying that your system probably is not, you know, equal. Because, again... More than anything, people are a reflection of their environments. And so if you grow up in a system 
which incentivizes racism, you're probably going to be more likely to be racist. Whereas if you grow up in a system which has no incentivization for being racist, which has no value in racism, you know, which sees no benefit for people if they are to be racist, then it, it, it would be quite probable to assume that very few people would want to be racist. And so that should show you that because so many people in today's day and age are extremely racist, you know, we'll talk about racism specifically, since so many people today are so extremely racist, then it should probably show you that maybe the environments which they're growing up in are racist or at the very least show some form of benefit for being racist and even if that is the minimum that has to be combated because at the very end of the day that will create an incentivization for someone to be racist and we probably don't want that uh, if you're still listening, I appreciate you very much. Um, I hope this was a somewhat understandable podcast. Um, I'm trying to figure out better ways to try to structure these so that I'm able to stay on course. But more than anything, I oftentimes just record because I have thoughts that I want to get out and no one to get them out to, so I record them. So, I mean, if you're coming here to my podcast to get a well-researched, well-structured, you know, intellectual discussion, then you should probably go somewhere else because I'm way too high for that shit. Um, but yeah, so if you're still listening and if you don't have a problem with it, you're uh, pretty cool in my book. Um, thanks for listening again. If you don't already, go ahead and follow me on my social medias. I have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, my name is Annoying Question Boy on all of those. I also have a blog, which you can find online. It's uh, Annoying Question Boy, spelled just like that, with no caps or spaces, dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. So that spells out annoyingquestionboy dot blogspot dot com. Uh, and then I also have a YouTube, which I haven't updated in like four months. So, I mean, you can check that out if you want, but I wouldn't cross my fingers. And then my final plug is uh, I'm I'm coming to terms with the fact that the editing process of my book might take a little bit longer, but I still want to get it edited, you know, here in a couple weeks and ready to send out manuscripts and stuff. So if there's anyone who would want to be uh, someone who would read it and kind of give me their opinion, that would be cool. But if you don't want to do that and you know you're just thinking you're excited or you wanna you have interest in this book. Uh, hopefully I'll have some PDF copies ready soon. Uh, I'm probably not for nothing. I might publish it just for shits and giggles of publishing it, but I'm probably just going to make it like a public domain publication and then just give it out for free because one, everybody's poor right now. And two, that seems like less effort than trying to publish it. Um, so yeah, be on the lookout for that hopefully soon. Uh, again, thanks for listening. I hope everybody's doing well. Um, I love you all. Thank you for support supporting me. Uh, I hope everybody is, you know, safe and healthy in these times and able to stay that way. 
Uh, and until next time, I mean, you know, stay that way, stay safe, uh, stay anti-capitalist, stay anti-imperialist, and stay. Have a good one, folks. Uh, we'll catch you later.